Okay, if you open your Bibles tonight to Joshua chapter 7. Be there in Joshua chapter 7. I have to admit, I stand before you tonight with a bit of a heavy heart. I um, don't know. It's probably because when you get up and preach, the Lord gives you a burden. And uh, so it comes from the Lord. And I <clears throat> I guess, so I was trying to put my finger on what, what exactly is the source of that. And I think it's just because um, I love our church so much. And my... Um, my the history of Christianity in my life anyway revolves around this church and this church made all the difference to me and so uh, you you want to stick and stay and you want to uh, you want to uh, help and stay in there through thick and thin and all of this and um, our church is changing you have to admit that and I, I'm a little nervous this evening because I don't want to say something I shouldn't say but uh, our church is, is changing. I'm not saying that change is not the Lord's will. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. But um, so what I am saying is that certain things shouldn't change. Amen. I am a, uh, a conservative kind of person. And the reason I am is because God is. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God himself says, God, I am thy God, I change not. We're conservative because God's conservative. And so we should be the same in some ways. But in some ways there, change, there, there is change. And I think what happens sometimes with change is there's a bit of a crossover. And I don't know if, again, I, I'm trying to be careful tonight. I, get, I think that's why I'm, you know, when some things are not good. When uh, we, we have to put out giant signs out there by the bus barn to get somebody to get their bus license, we can't get anybody to do it. We can't get men to do it. I'm sorry, but there's a problem there. When we have to, uh, when we call for a work party and people just don't come out like they used to, there's a problem there. And I think it's a reflection of People just don't appreciate what Jesus has done for them. So there, there are some things um, that I, I, I come to you with, with a heavy heart. And I, I look at uh, parents. I'm, I'm a parent. And being a parent is um, quite a battle, isn't it? You, it's like a tug of war. And I can remember, uh, you remember tug of war, don't you? you? You pull and you pull and you pull. But it's like there's always, always, always a pull towards coming down on what you believe. Always. There is a constant, <clears throat> pardon me, ever-present uh, pull towards the world. And as dads, I'm speaking to men, well, everybody, but we're responsible. There's always, always a pull for me to... Uh, give in. Give in a little bit here. Give in a little bit there. It's always there and it never goes away. And sometimes you just get tired. Um, the same thing is true for a church. There's a constant pull. Constant, 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 constant. Never, ever ceasing to, to go down on what you believe. To, to you know, th- for there to be a subsequent dropping in, you know, standards and the things that we hold so dear. Um, I was reading, I think it was uh, Jonathan Goforth, uh, Go By My Spirit, I think it is. And there he said something, uh, I think it, that's where I read it. And he said that no church is ever but one generation away from losing the things that are so dear to them. One, one generation. So change happens, doesn't it? It does, it happens. But there are some things we must not allow to change, ever. And so I I think to myself, um, so why, where are the broken hearts? Um, Where where are the people coming to the altar broken? 
you know, weeping about something. Where is that? We talk about revival. You know, I suppose when, when you're going to preach the message, you listen to the music, and of course you see how it correlates because you're going to say it. But uh, a lot of what we sang, it, it, it has to do with what? You know, revive thy work. So it seems to me that if that's true, if we're but a generation away, then it's revival or apostasy. There's, no, there's nothing in between. It's really hard to imagine our church in one generation being apostate. But it's possible. And we can talk about the world. We can talk about how awful it is. And it is. But that should not influence us. It should not. It should make no difference to us what goes on out there. We're going to stick with what we believe. So then I think to myself, well, why aren't we seeing that? Why aren't we seeing revival? Why, why are things... And I think it's because there's sin. There's sin in our church. I can't imagine that's anything else. Isaiah said, your sins have separated you between you and your God. The flesh warreth against the spirit, the spirit warreth against the flesh. They are contrary one, another, one to another, so that you cannot do the things that you would. There's sin. And I'm going to talk about a particular sin tonight. The title of my message is Covetousness, the Identification and the Cure. I think we're covetous as a church. I think that starts with me. The reason I say that is because, of course, I studied it, and I looked at what the Bible says about it, and I had to conclude that, in, at least in some measure, I'm, I'm a covetous man. And furthermore, God hates and abhors covetousness. I don't think we see it that way. So as I go through the sermon, I, I don't... Try, I'm trying to let the Lord lead here. But um, we see Achan. So in Joshua chapter 7, beginning in verse 10. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Get thee up, wherefore liest thou thus upon thy face? So Josh, or, uh, yes, Joshua here was heavy about something. They had just lost the battle of Ai. They had lost the battle. <clears throat> so he was heavy. He's praying. The Lord said, Get up. 11. Israel has sinned. And have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken of the accursed thing, and have also stolen and dissembled also, and they have put it even among their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you any more, except you destroy the accursed thing from among you. Now I'm going to continue reading from there, but why were they accursed? Because Israel has sinned, it says in verse 11. Up, sanctify the people, and say, Sanctify yourselves against tomorrow. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, There is an accursed thing in the midst of thee, O Israel. Thou canst not stand before thine enemies until ye take away the accursed thing from among you. In the morning, therefore, ye shall be brought according to your tribes. And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord taketh shall come according to the families thereof. And the family which the Lord shall take shall come by households. And the household which the Lord shall take shall come man by man. And it shall be that he that is taken with the accursed thing shall be burnt with fire. And he, he and all that he hath, because he hath transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he hath wrought folly in Israel. <clears throat> so, Joshua rose up early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes. And the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought the family of Judah. And, the, and he took the family of the Zarhites. And he brought the family of the Zarhites man by man. And Zabdi was taken. And he brought his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. And Joshua said unto Achan, My son, give, me, I pray thee, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel, and make confession unto him, and tell me now what thou hast done. Hide it not from me. And Achan, Achan answered and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. 21, when I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonian garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight, then I coveted them. 
and took them, and behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. And so Joshua sent messengers, and they ran into the tent, and they, they found those things, and of course we know what happens after that. So why were they accursed? Because there was covetousness in the camp. It's, it's true that he took those things, but why did he take it? Because he coveted them. So what I want to say, what I want to preach tonight is a sermon on covetousness. We hear it uh, often preached, but I, I began to look at it, and I looked at everything that the Bible says about covetousness. And I'm not going to present all of it, but I, I want to present enough of it to open your eyes to this truth so that you can make a change. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for your love for us. I, I ask now that you you'd bless. Um, I am... Uh, heavy-hearted, Lord. I, I, I don't know why you necessarily burdened me this way, but um, I, I, I love our church, but more, I, I don't love our church as much as you do. You sacrificed and you shed your blood for the church. And so this institution is very, very precious to you. And you're going to watch over it, and you're going to make sure it's clean, and you're going to make sure it's right. And so, Lord, um, I believe we live in this dispensation of the church. And there are special things and distinct things about this. But it is true that if we sin, then we can go to you as much as we wish and ask you to work on our kids' hearts and ask you to break the will of our children that they would open their hearts to you and that we would and they would simply offer themselves. But if we have sin in our life, you're, you're not going to hear that. And so, Lord, I, I think that, I hope that this will be a blessing ultimately. And uh, whether or not I love our church, it's not, that's not important. But the fact that you love it, and you do not wish um, for us to change, because you don't change. You don't, want, you don't want us to change. It cannot be that we would allow things to, to make a difference and to change these things that are so precious to us, that are based on the Bible. And so, Lord, I, I beg you, please, as I have, that do great work uh, tonight and that you continue to do it and you should be honored through it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, somebody here has heard of the marshmallow experiment. Maybe not. It sounds a bit odd, but it's actually a very famous experiment. Uh, years ago, I think it was in the 70s, uh, there was an experiment done with children. And they brought children into... A room, hundreds of kids ultimately were experimented on, and uh, they sat them down in chairs, and they offered them some a very simple thing, and they put a marshmallow before them. Now, some of you are thinking to yourselves, "Well, marshmallows," <laughs> but to a child, and they said, "Okay, this is the uh, deal." I'm sure I'm paraphrasing, but just to give you an idea, you can, you have two options. Because you can. Uh, I'm going to leave, the, the person said, and I'll be back in 15 minutes. 15 minutes. Now, you can, I'm going to put that marshmallow for you. You're welcome to eat that marshmallow. But if you can wait 15 minutes, then you'll get another marshmallow. So the choice was, I either take this marshmallow and immediately gratify myself now, or I wait and get two marshmallows. Then he left. So hundreds of kids and they all, and of course it was pretty um, humorous to watch the kids battle their flesh. Some of them seemed like they were in pain. Some just grabbed the marshmallow right away and just popped it in there and ate it. Some waited a little while, looked at what somebody else would do. You can imagine there was a huge chasm of responses to it. And there was only a very small amount, very small, that actually waited. And that was only 15 minutes. So, Maybe those results aren't very uh, surprising to you. That's not really surprising to me. But the reason why that experiment is so famous was not because of that. It's because of what the rest of the experiment really entailed. And it entailed following the lives of those children. They followed their lives for 40 years. And at the end of the sermon, I'll give you the results of those things. So covetousness. I think this is a sin that's a hidden sin, isn't it? I think Pastor Teasdale talks about he talked about pride and how that's a it's a hidden sin so you can't see it right away. As a result, you know if if I was um, angry, and uh, you can see that right away, can't you? And that's something that you're you're immediately um, 
uh, you know, you're brought to conscious about. But pride and covetousness, you can't see that right away. As a result, that's a sin sometimes that goes unchecked. We don't check it. And so because of that, uh, it begins to deceive us. We feel like we could be covetous, and it's okay. We'll get away with it. And, it, and, and the problem with it deceiving us is that it begins to harden our heart. The Bible says in Hebrews 3.13, But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now imagine this sin unchecked in your life and you being deceived by it. If you're in a state of deception, then you don't, you don't see it. Um, Pastor Olson this morning talked about oftentimes there's, that we can't see sin in our own life, and it's true. And I'm going to talk about some of those things some more. And some of you weren't here this morning. But, but it's hidden. And, and right now, if you're deceived, then according to the scriptures, your heart is hard. And if your heart is hard, how then can the Lord speak to you? And it begins with understanding what this sin really is. So I think, that's why I think, that this sin is a particular sin that is very likely keeping our church from seeing revival and keeping it from heading where the Lord wants us to go. What is covetousness? Well, I think we understand. It's a strong or inordinate desire of obtaining and possessing some supposed good, excessive desire for riches or money. And of course, it's a bad sense. Now, covetousness isn't always bad. Covetousness isn't always bad. Sometimes it's good. We'll look at that in the scriptures. Somebody said it this way. There are countless signs that our culture is sick with greed. You probably didn't need to be told that. All And the thing with desiring things that you don't have is it, it, it causes you, and this is what this person said, and I think it's true, and I never looked at it this way. It causes people to live in a fantasy world because they are not content with where they are. And they feel like if I just reach out and get something, anything, no matter what it is that I want, then I'll live outside of where I am right now because I'm just not content with where I'm at. And so for a short time, they live in this fantasy bubble, as it were. And to take that away is hard. And so with, with this, I think that... Um, the world understands that. And so they fuel this culture. It's a culture of greed. And it's really an expression of discontent. It's really an expression of pain. And it's really an expression of fear. So, um, because uh, we, we have this feeling that we need something that we don't have, then we tend to feel like I don't have control over my life. And the problem with that is, of course, if we live in this world, then we won't be working to change the one that we're in. It's true. There are things we simply can't afford. There are some things, lots of things. But I don't mean that we can't afford it simply because we can't pay for it. We can't afford to have a society that is covetous, but we have one. And furthermore, we can't afford a church that is covetous. Somebody said the love of possessions is a sickness. People are losing their lives in the pursuit of wealth and possessions. They're dying from gunshot wounds and heart attacks and gang battles and in solitary hospital beds, and it's getting worse. The symptoms are appearing, not just in ourselves, but in the planet we call home. If we don't cure it soon, it could prove fatal for all of us. Now, of course, these people are speaking from a secular point of view. But America is rife with covetousness. The average amount of credit card debt per person varies depending on age and some other things. But there are 537 million credit card accounts in the United States. And they project that it's going to increase by 6% in the future. So credit card debt in the United States totaled $841 billion in the first quarter of 2022, last year, a year ago. That fluctuates. They say some things, but just that figure is enough for me. Eight hundred forty-one billion. That 
averages out to about $5,769 um, average per person credit card debt. Over $5,000. You might find this interesting. The age group that is in the most debt are individuals 75 years old and up. The lowest one are the ones that are 35 years old and down. And I think that's because they still live with their parents. <laughs> and and the, the state with the largest debt, Alaska. The state with the smallest debt, Iowa. You'll be happy to know that Indiana was right towards the bottom too. But really, the difference between 6,000 and 4,000, I mean, it's a lot, but still... The Americans that are in the majority of the 60th to, to about 80th uh, annual income percentile, in other words, if you make about 60, what 60% of Americans make up to 80%, those are the ones most likely to carry debt. So, we're in debt. And when you're in debt, you're a slave. You might have heard of the Divine Comedy. You might have heard of uh, Dante's Inferno. And this was written way back in the 1300s. And this is a story, I don't know if you've read it or not, about, I have not read it, but it's a story about the, the main uh, character. And he uh, ends up in a forest, and he has a friend named Virgil. And in this forest, he realizes if, through a, a chain of events that he's actually dead. And so he walks through uh, this journey uh, in, through what's called the Inferno. They encounter horrors happening within the inferno, and they go through nine circles. There's nine circles there. And in one particular place, there's a place where there are seven terraces of a mountain. Each one of those terraces, you know, a terrace, another level, represents a what is called here a deadly sin. The fourth one, you might guess, is greed or covetousness. There... There was a Roman god by the name of Pluto that is regarded as the god of wealth. And the sinners there were divided into two groups, those who hoarded their possessions and those who spent sumptuously. And their punishment, and this is what I thought was, was to push very heavy weights up a mountain. That's what is their punishment. Now we know hell is not going to be that way. But these rocks or big weights or boulders symbolize their lust for never-ending money. Imagine having to push a boulder up a mountain that's an, that never ends. And that's the way he saw this idea of covetousness, because the truth is, you're never satisfied if you choose not to be satisfied. So love is a decision, isn't it? But so is contentment. I can remember I was, um, and I use this example a lot, but I, was, uh, we, I used to fill up our buses uh, with, um, not here, uh, at, at a, but now, so here we just go to the gas pump, right? But most churches don't have that. And so I had to find a place, if you can imagine, that was big enough to have diesel fuel and to accommodate a bus. So I would drive the buses over there into this one place, and I would fill them up. So I'm filling them up, and I think, I think, uh, I think Michael and Andrew might have been with me once or twice with that. And we would just go, and we'd fill this bus up. And uh, I, I heard a Harley Davidson pull up, and that's a very distinctive sound. So this couple pulls up with this, with this motorcycle, and it was brand new, and it was beautiful. I mean, it was, the chrome was shining. It was gorgeous. It was a blue, beautiful And I thought to myself, wow, they, they must be pretty happy. And it was a couple, and by the look on their face didn't show they were happy at all. And I'm thinking to myself, that doesn't go together. Look, what you, look at that. Look what you're riding around in. But they weren't happy at all. And I got to thinking, you know, I can imagine they're driving down the uh, road right in their motorcycle. By the way, do you know how you can tell that uh, a motorcycle driver likes their motorcycle? Because they have mosquitoes on their teeth. <laughs> it's protein. So I can imagine them, and you know that motorcycle riders have a sign that they give when other motorcycles pass, you know, they kind of go like this, and it's a, so once you get a motorcycle, I guess you're in this uh, special pact of people. And uh, I can imagine them driving their motorcycle down there, and they'll see a motorcycle just like theirs going the other way, only theirs have these really cool saddlebags. 
their motorcycle doesn't have those saddlebags. And so they think to themselves, although this thing is brand new, you know, I, I have to run out and get the saddlebags. So then they get the saddlebags, and they're happy again. The mosquitoes are there. And then the same people go by, but they have matching helmets. Oh, well, <laughs> no more mosquitoes. So you, you get to think, you know what? That never ends, does it? You can have the entire world, and it would never be enough. You can have all the money in the world, but if you choose that it's not, you're not going to be content with that, you just won't. So, let's look at some verses talking about covetousness. You might guess that the first mention of it is in Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments. In verse 17, it says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, or his ox, or his ass, or anything that is thy neighbor's. Of course, the last commandment of the Ten Commandments, which was the Lord's uh, expectancy for his people. In chapter 19 of Exodus, there the people were at the mountain, Sinai, and the Lord gave them a choice. And they said, you can choose to be my people. I will be your God, and it's up to you. Choose this day you're going to be. Now, he brought them out of Egypt, and everybody gave them a choice there. And they said, the Lord, he is our God. We, we will do what he says. All right, so at that point, then he gave the Ten Commandments. So you see there was an expectation for the title people of God. There's an expectation. And what does the Lord expect of his people? That, they're, they're not be, that they not be covetous. Now, as I said, sometimes covetousness is used in a positive sense. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, 31, But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. So this is talking about the gifts, spiritual gifts, that are given to people in the church. And we are to covet those gifts. So I wonder if you even know what your spiritual gift is. Far, much less covet it. Do you even know what it is? That's an important part of the scriptures. It says in uh, chapter 14, verse 39, Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophecy. So these are good things that we should covet. We should covet God's word. We should desire to have more of this. We should desire to be useful in our church, using our gifts in our church. So that gift that you have, let me just say this, is that thing that you, that, the way I understand it, is that thing, that's, that desire that you have, almost that you can do without getting tired of it ever. And it's the thing that you'll lean on when you minister, whatever it might be. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some, having coveted after, they have, number one, erred from the faith, and number two, pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So if I'm to understand this verse right, the people that are covetous have erred from the faith. They are faithless people. Covetous people are faithless people. What does the Bible say about faith? Without faith, without, without faith it is impossible to please him. Indirectly, then, covetousness, you cannot please God if you're covetous. And in this way, it's the love of money. If we, if we are reaching out, by the way, that word covet here means to reach out and to grab. So if we have this love for money, which is the root of all evil, then we'll have no need to have faith in the Lord, or so we think. The Bible says in Habakkuk 2.9, Woe to him that coveteth, an evil covetousness to his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. Woe to him who gets an evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high to be saved from reach of harm. The reason I use this verse is because covetousness evidently affects our, our home. So if you're a covetous man, you're damaging your home. Psalm 10.3 I like this one because of how direct it is. For the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire and blesseth the covetous, whom the Lord abhorreth. Do you know what God thinks about your covetousness? He abhors it. If you're listening tonight, he abhors it. It's an abomination. He hates it. I don't hate it like, I don't hate it like that. I don't. In fact, we, we consider people that have a lot of things to be successful. The Lord tells us in Luke chapter 16, And the Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things, and they derided him. So the Lord here had given the parable of the unjust steward. You might remember there was a Lord who had a steward, and he came to give, he asked the steward to give account of his stewardship, and it wasn't a good account. 
So the steward, realizing that he wasn't going to any longer be steward, went and he uh, told people that owed his master a hundred, and he said, marked it down to fifty, and so forth. He did these things, and he was commended for it. So there are people listening to the Lord give this parable. Some of them, the Pharisees, listened to that, and they thought to themselves, I'm paraphrasing here, he says, that's, that's foolish. And they derided him. That means to treat him contemptuously, to, to look down on him. That's ridiculous. And you know what? If you look at that parable by, at face value, you might say the same thing. Is that right? What, what that steward did? And yet the Lord commended him. 1 Corinthians 5, 9, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. Now, fornicators, that's a horrible thing. And that's something that's pretty, you know, if somebody is uh, in fornication, and that's something that, right? But covetousness, not so much. However, the Lord puts them together. Yet not altogether with fornicators of this world, or with covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters. Then he says this, For then must ye needs go out of the world. Let me repeat that. 1 Corinthians 5, 9. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or with extortioners, or with idolaters, because if, it's, if so, I'm, per, I'm adding words here, then must ye needs go out of the world. What does he mean by that? Well, I think it could be two things. Number one, the world can't go on if everybody is covetous, if everybody is fornicating, if everybody's extorting or being an idolater. The world can't go on. Or it could mean, because this is a church epistle, that covetousness could be that thing that the Lord takes you out of the world because of. I guess what I'm saying is when I looked at this, it was far more serious than I could have imagined. So, some other things, Ephesians 5, 3. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you. Wow. Not one single time has become a saint. Not one single time. What does the Lord expect of, this, of us? That none of us, not one single member in this church be covetous at all. Zero. Nothing. It's what he expects. It's what he says. Then he says in verse 5, For this ye know, that no whoremonger, or unclean person, or covetous man, who is an idolater. Do you know idolatry is just as prevalent today as it ever has been? It's called covetousness, but it's idolatry. It's that thing we put up as an idol. It's a... Well, I'll just read it. 1 Timothy 3. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Why shall they come? For men shall be lovers of the own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers. It is a hallmark of the last days is covetousness. And I'm going to get a minute into how you can know if you're covetous. I'm getting there. But we're just looking at what the Bible says about it. Isaiah 57 talks about how covetousness is a deterrent to revival. Isaiah fifty seven fourteen and and shall say cast ye up cast ye up prepare the way take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people for thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity whose name is holy I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones okay so the Lord is desiring to revive his people. For I will not contend forever, neither will I be, be always wroth. For the spirit should fail before me in the souls which I have made. For the iniquity of his covetousness was I wroth and smote him. So the very sin that would keep um, a revival from happening among God's people was covetousness. Bible, Luke, uh, the Lord tells us in Luke chapter 12, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. But you know, that's how we see things. I wonder, everybody gauges success differently. But if somebody has a nice house, if somebody has a nice car, what do we say? Oh, that person is successful. In the eyes of the Lord, is that person successful according to this verse? Not in the least. So, do we want to gauge success by our standard or by the Lord's standard? 
Romans 1.28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. Okay, this word reprobate means unapproved, worthless, cast away, to do those things which are not convenient. Okay, so what are the actions of a reprobate mind, inconvenient, that do things that are not convenient? Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness. I almost think that we read that and we think, okay, unrighteousness, all right, that's a general term. Fornication, oh, of course, that's the reprobate mind. Wickedness, yep, that's another general Covetousness, well, let's just pass over that one. Maliciousness, full of envy, murder, no, it's there. A couple more. Second Corinthians 9, 5. Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before unto you and make up beforehand of your bounty. So he's talking about giving an offering. Whereof he had noticed before that the same might be ready as a matter of bounty and not as of covetousness. What is the sin that causes somebody not to give the way they're supposed to? What is it? Covetousness. I wonder why our offerings aren't where they're supposed to be. Colossians 3.5 Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness. Once again they say which is idolatry. So we can't get away from it. Covetousness, according to the Lord, is idolatry. Covetousness is something that he abhors. Covetousness is something that he says should not be one, t- one single time named among the saints. Covetousness is that thing that's going to cause you not to give what you're supposed to give. Covetousness is going to destroy your home, and we can go on and on and on. It's not a good thing, is it? So you say, okay, I see what, I see what the Lord says about that. I understand that. Now I'm going to ask myself, am I covetous? Lord, am I a covetous person? Am I? Well, let's go to Joshua chapter 7 to see if we can identify that. Joshua chapter 7, verse 16. Through 21. I've read it already, so I'm not going to read it again. But, but I'm going to give, I want you, with me, to ask yourself a series of questions. Okay? And answer the question for yourself. And if the question, if the answer to the question is no then very likely you're covetous. Okay, look at verse 16. So Joshua rose up early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken, and he brought the family of Judah, and he took the family of the Zarhites, and he brought the family of the Zarhites man by man, and Zabdi was taken, and he brought his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. And Joshua said unto Achan, My son, give I pray thee glory to the Lord God of Israel, and make confession unto him, and tell me not what I was done, Hide it not from me. My point is this. He went tribe to family all the way down, didn't he? And so, the point is this. Who was the one that identified who was covetous there? The Lord did. They did these things by lot, didn't they? And they went tribe to tribe. Now, it's funny. When, when the Lord told Joshua, up, sanctify yourselves, get rid of what the, that, the uh, accursed thing from the camp... Uh, he says, tomorrow morning. He says, tomorrow morning, I want you to assemble everybody. He didn't say it right then. It's my personal opinion that the Lord was giving a grace period for Achan to admit his sin before time, and he, he did not. I hope that we're not going to be that way. So, question number one. Have you ever asked the Lord to tell you if you're, if you're covetous? If not, you're probably covetous. The Lord singled out Achan here. There was no one else to blame. There was no excuses. At that point, what could Achan say? So he, the, it, the, we, the Lord, it was necessary for the Lord to show this. Now, why is it the accursed thing? This is a thing maybe more of interest than anything. But um, I, I say this to say <clears throat> that uh, the accursed thing was something that needed to be put up. In front of everybody. It needed to be identified. Okay? So, uh, the Lord pe- told the people that Jericho was cursed. And what the God told um, Joshua, and we see this in chapter 7 in the beginning. You can read it if you wish. But he told him, okay, uh, I want you to go and um, go around the city of Jericho. I think we know this, right? Even the, we, we teach kids this. Go around one time a day, once a day, and then seven times that last day. And this is what he told uh, Joshua to do. There is no record of the Lord telling Joshua directly 
everything that's in there is, I want you to give his offering to me. He may have told him very well, he could have. There's just no record of it. Or it could just be that the Lord, because he put Joshua as the leader of, of God's people, that he expected the people to follow what the leader said. And maybe uh, Joshua was taking the precedence of Abraham, who did not receive tithes of uh, the king of Sodom, because it was a cursed thing them to him, there to him too. So maybe, maybe this is what he was following. It's not really certain. However, the Lord follows through and calls those, those things that Achan took accursed also. So, why was Jericho accursed? Why? Well, uh, the people in Jericho were uh, a part of the group of people called the Amorites. The Amorites were the, of the sons of Amor, and they dwelt in a place, uh, it tells us in Genesis, called Hezazan Tamar. And I'll get to that in a minute. But do you remember, if we go back, I'm not going to go there, but in Genesis uh, 15, the Lord told Abraham, I want you to uh, give me an offering. And uh, so he built two altars, and he offered sacrifice, and he divided the animals in half. He put the half of the animal here in half, except the birds he didn't divide. And, the, and he killed them. He put them on the altar, and then he waited for the Lord to see. The Bible says that the Abraham shooed the birds away. Well, then, uh, night comes, and the Lord uh, receives that sacrifice. It was a burnt sacrifice. He burns, and he gives, uh, he speaks to Abraham in what is a vision or a dream. And he tells them that his descendants would be underneath um, domination for 400 years by another people. And that after 400 years, they were going to come out of Egypt. And then he was going to give them that very land that Abraham was in, which is today the promised land. It's Israel. And then he says, when after 400 years you come out of there, you're going to come out of there. But he he doesn't say there, you're going to come out so that I can give you the land. He says, after 400 years, you're going to come out. He says this, because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. That's what he said. So evidently there was a level of iniquity that had to be achieved before this was going to happen. Well, it just so happens that the the people of Jericho were of that descendancy. And I could go through it all, but it's not necessary. The point is, this was a sinful people. It was a sinful, sinful people. And for, in the Bible, now think with me, in the Bible, apparently... Receiving things, things and goods and, and even offerings and that, from people that are wicked was not done, was it? Did Abraham do that? Did Joshua do that? How many times do we go after things that wicked people offer? So with, with this, um, the, the, these things, it's because it was wicked, because there was iniquity. Now, as was mentioned this morning, as I already mentioned, we need the Lord to tell us if we're covetous. We need him to tell us. Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Proverbs 14.14 says, The backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways, and a good man shall be satisfied from himself. Psalm 119, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We need the Lord to shine his lamp on this sin. I can remember um, this idea of not knowing. So I guess what I'm saying is, ultimately, covetousness is something that the Lord has to reveal to you. And unless you ask for it, very likely you're covetous and you don't know it. Years ago, uh, Pastor Adams came to preach at uh, our church before. And uh, you remember Bill Adams. He's in Manchester, Tennessee, I think it is. Oh, this is his dad. And I think his dad is a pilot. I think it was him. And he flew in. You know, it was a small plane. It wasn't, you know, it was a small one. And he flew in with another person. And this other person was an engineer. So he was preaching that night. Because he was an engineer, we struck up a conversation. We had something in common. And uh, he was telling me that... They had just changed the engines in that plane. So I asked him about their plane, and he said they had just recently changed engines. And that other engine they put in there operated at a different frequency or a different uh, RPM than what the other one did. As a result, it has a different frequency or shaking. Well, it turns out that the frequency of that new motor matched real close the the natural frequency of the metal that was used to make the plane. So in engineering terms, they would go through constructive interference and you have resonance. Okay, what does all that mean? It means it shook the plane so much that the metal broke. 
And as it was a miracle, they didn't die. But you can imagine flying this small plane, and that whole time that the engine is running, running and running, the metal is getting fatigued, and it's getting fatigued, and it's getting fatigued, until there was a breaking point. I think that's how covetousness is sometimes. We don't realize it. It's going, it's going, it's going, it's going, it's going. We don't realize, we don't understand until there's a breaking point. So, if you've not asked, number two, second question. Do you guard and you put safeguards um, for your eyes? Look at verse 20 of chapter 7. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. And when I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonian garment and so forth. Anyway, you get the point. David said, Mine eye affecteth my heart. Solomon, although he didn't obey this, he said, Keep thy heart with all, all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Later on, he says, Let thy eyes look right before thee. Doesn't Jeremiah say in Lamentations 3, Mine eye affected my heart because of all the daughters of my city? Job 31, I have made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? So if you don't guard what you see, I feel on pretty strong biblical grounds, you're covetous. The average American, let me prove that for you, spends on their phone. Okay, here's some more statistics. Most mobile phone users check their phones 63 times a day. Americans spend an average screen time of 50, uh, no, 5.4 hours on their mobile phones daily. 5.4, about five and a half hours. That's more than a work, day, more than half of a work day. There will be over 311.53 million smartphone users in America if it goes the way it is now, by 2025. Social media is responsible for two hours and 24 minutes of global internet time spent online by an average user daily. 13% of millennials spend, this is mind-boggling, over 12 hours on their phone a day. 12 hours. I assume they take it to school and all the rest of it. Baby boomers spend five hours using their phones, but still, five hours. Baby boomers. That's the generation above me. Millennials spend 48 minutes texting every day. In 2006, Jay Walker Smith, president of the marketing firm, now, again, I'm going to tell you, this is what he said, okay? This is incredible. Claimed, they claimed this after their study, that the average American was exposed to 5,000 ads a day. Advertisements. I still don't believe that. i be honest with you, I, still, I gave you this, I still don't believe it. Now, it includes going to the supermarket. If you do, everything you see is an advertisement. Billboards, etc. That's ten times more than what it was in 1970. So, among the things that we see ads for, what are they? How do we, how do we see advertisements? We said billboards, right? We said you go to the supermarket. Anywhere you see any, even people wearing clothes that have the swish on it. No, those are advertisements, aren't they? They're ads. They are. Adidas, those, those are ads. I'm not saying this is wicked. I'm just telling you, we're, we're looking at, we're, we're seeing these things. What about your PCs? What about your laptops? What about your phone? Um, yeah, the, the, he says here, the web is awash with ads, display ads, pop-up ads, and videos, and so forth. Um, sometimes you'll go there, and I'll be doing, I'll be researching, probably I was researching for this very thing. And you scroll down through there, reading things, and all of a sudden you got to scroll past the screen that's giving an ad. On the right column there, there's more ads. Um, it is currently estimated that about 40% of U.S. PC users um, use uh See, or use ad blocking. Okay, so there is that. But even so, um, they have about the 
it, it, so it is estimated that the average Internet user encounters 11,250 ads per month just on the PC or about 375 a day. Mobile devices, smartphones furnish you with the same collection of ads as the PC. Really, it's the same thing. Video games, I guess. I don't, I don't, honestly, I don't play video games, but I understand that, that there are ads there too. So I, I tell you, how in the world, how in the world can your heart not be affected? How can it not be? So I say, if you don't guard the things that you see, put something up there, you're going to be covetous. You're going to eventually want those things. And I'll be just transparent with you. There have been times, I, I, there are times I go on there and I, there is something, and I don't go there to see it, but there's things there that I should not have seen. And they're there. And if you're going to be honest with yourself, why don't I just take it away completely because I'm covetous? That's kind of tough, isn't it? I think a lot of you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't dare think about taking those things away from yourself or putting any kind of safeguards because it's an idol for you. That's hard, isn't it? It's awful quiet in here, but I hope you're thinking about that. The third question. Do you understand that you will eventually take what you see? Look at verse 21 here. Um, when I saw him on the spoils of a goodly Babylonian garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold, I coveted them and then I took them. You look at something enough. And you will eventually reach out and take it. Or you'll reach out and look for it on purpose. Or you'll look at it on purpose. You will. You will. The flesh lusteth against the spirit. And the spirit against the flesh. They are contrary one to another. So you cannot do the things that you would. It may start off innocently enough. But it doesn't take long. Have you put up safeguards? And then lastly. Are you hiding something? He says that, doesn't he, here in uh, 21. I took them, and behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my... Why did he hide them? Why did Achan hide them? Because he knew it was wrong. If there's something you're hiding, if there's something that you've seen or wanted or desired that you want anybody else to know, sorry to tell you, that's, what you're, that's your idol. And you're being covetous. So how can the Lord send us revival? How can he? If our church is rife with this sin of covetousness that the Lord abhors, how is he going to send us revival? I know that's tough. I know it is. It was tough for me. But if if we don't confront ourselves with it, then we're going to have to accept this awful change that isn't in the right direction. So, how do we deal with it? I'll finish up with this. In chapter 7, verse 13. This is what the Lord told. Now, understanding now that the sin that Achan committed really ultimately was a sin, a sin of covetousness. I mean, after all, um, is there anything wicked about a garment or silver or gold? The point is he coveted it. That was the sin. So it says in 13 here, Up, sanctify the people and say, Sanctify yourselves against tomorrow. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, There is an accursed thing in the midst of thee, O Israel. Thou canst not stand before thine enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. Okay, three things. How do I deal with it? Okay, we looked at what the Bible says about, about covetousness. We, we've seen how to, how to identify it in the form of questions. Now, what's the three-step process here? Number one, sanctify yourself. Set yourself apart unto the Lord. It will make it a lot easier for you to do what you have to do when you set yourself apart for the Lord. In other words, we do what it says in Romans chapter 12, and we offer ourselves a living sacrifice. We sanctify ourselves. We start off by saying, Lord, I'm going to renew my sanctification towards you. I am yours. I belong to you. And these eyes and these hands and this mind and these ears and so forth is all yours. It's all yours. It belongs to you. And if there's anything I'm using these things for, because they belong to you and I recognize that, then I'm going to give it up for you. So you sanctify yourselves. Isaiah 8, 8 says, uh, Sanctify the Lord host himself and let him be your fear and let him be your dread. John seventeen seventeen, the Lord there says, Sanctify them through thy truth. 
Thy word is truth. We've looked at God's word, and I'm going to repeat that again in just a minute. But sanctify yourself. Sometimes it may take time. Get alone with the Lord and tell the Lord, I I have not been as sanctified to you as I should. I I, I love you, and I, and I say, I know I say I love you, but I just deal with my flesh sometimes. And Lord, it it, it belongs to you. It's all yours. And then once we do that, the step step number two is search for the accursed thing. Ask the Lord to point that out. Um, so a search has to be done. We have to search our heart. We have to look inside there and 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 you know uh, take the layers of it. Like uh, yeah. Anyway, you understand searching it. The heart is deceitful above all things. It says, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The next verse says, I, the Lord, search the heart. So the heart is deceitful. Okay, how can we know how deceitful it is? Because the Lord will search it for us. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Now, I decided for this sermon that I was not going to give anybody an excuse. Sometimes preachers, we do that. We'll say, this is true. Now, I know that, and we'll go like that. I don't think it's my job to give an excuse. You can give excuse if you want to. That's not my job. So, what helps us to know our heart? The Bible says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even unto the abiding asunder of the soul and spirit of the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's God's word. And let me just say, it's not any one of God's word. It's the King James Bible. It's that one. You say, why am I defending the King James Bible? Because it's the every word Bible. Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God will tell me. If we, how can we possibly live by every word of God if we don't have every word of God? He promised to preserve it for us, and that preservation is, is uh, in the uh, Greek and, and the Hebrew text uh, backing the King James. It's an excellent translation. We'll never have a group of, of translators the same way or the same method again. I don't see how it's possible. This text is the only one, really, that buttresses the doctrine of preservation because it has been the, Bible, the, the text that has been used through good fundamental churches throughout time. So, if we don't say that, if we don't defend that, then we'll lose it within a generation. We will. And I can tell you, I can tell you, I, I, and I don't say this boasting at all, I'm just trying to make a point. I could have told you before I took Greek and all of that, that sure, the, the King James Bible was a good translation, but I, I didn't know that myself. But because of some of the classes I've taken, I've actually translated a good part of it. And I can tell you, I can tell you with a surety now, this translation is an excellent one. I, I know that now. So, um, if the Lord promised to preserve his inspired word, then we must have it. And we must have it in English. Where do we have it? We have it in the King James Bible. So the thing is, well, I want a Bible that, that I can easily read. Well, if you're reading Edgar Allan Poe and you don't understand it, what do you do? You get a dictionary. Or look at your phone, as long as you don't look at the ads. <laughs> so we're, we're not to change it. I had somebody uh, call before, and I think they were asking, um, they, they wanted to talk to somebody in the Greek department, like we have at the department. So they just gave me the call. And what he was doing is he was doing another translation of the Bible. He's looking, he was calling Bible colleges, and he wanted uh, people to take part in it. So he offered to give me a section of the Bible for me to translate. And then, as if it was going to be a benefit, and then I, I can have my name on this thing and all that. And I told him, I said, that's really the last thing I want to do. We already have a good translation. There's no point. Why do that? Well, I just want to be able to read it. You can read it just fine. Nothing wrong with it. I, I read it. Is there any problem understanding it? And if there is, then get you a little bit of help with whatever. But the point is, do we need another, another translation? We need another one? That's what we need? Really? I told him, I'm going to stick with, with the King James. I think it's the right translation. Well, it ended up, our contention was pretty sharp. He called me a wicked sinner and all the rest of it. 
But I'm telling you, I, I'll, I'll defend this translation because it's right. Because it is the every word Bible. This is the one that God has used to, to, to benefit and to bless churches throughout time. The last thing you do, sanctify, search, and then, uh, Pastor also mentioned this this morning too, get away from that thing. Segregate yourself. Get away from it. If there's something that, that, that is, has got me, then you've got to get away from it. You've got to cut it off. You've got to mortify it. This is why we have standards. The reason why we have standards is so that we don't go too far. There's got to be a line. Now think with me. If there's no standards of music, then anything goes. If there's no standards of dress, then anything goes. So we have to have some kind of line somewhere regarding music to line up with verses like Colossians 3.16, which says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Okay, so the music we listen to is to teach and admonish. In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace into your hearts to the Lord. So I would say, if the music you're listening to doesn't teach and admonish and doesn't uplift the Lord, it's the wrong kind of music. So we have standards so that we can... Now, does it mean that... Um, again, I'm not going to give excuses. But the point is that we have that line because, it, because we're trying to conform with what the Scriptures say. And we've covenanted together as a church to do so. We have to put the line somewhere regarding the way that we dress in order to line up with verses like Deuteronomy 22.5. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. Why? For all that do so are a, an abomination unto the Lord. The Lord expects us to dress distinctly. A lady is supposed to dress like, okay? It's supposed to be distinct is what it says here. Now you might say, well, that's Old Testament. Let me give you a New Testament verse. 1 Timothy 2.9. In fact, the New Testament goes further. In like manner also that women adore themselves in modest apparel. Now I'm not canceling out men here. We should be modest too. But the point is, is speaking to women. Adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. I'm going to focus in on that word apparel. This comes from a Greek word. It's the only time used in the whole New Testament, and it comes from two words. The one word is kata, and it means to put down. And the other one is stelo, which means to withdraw from. So the word here translated apparel basically means long and flowing. Now, let me help you a little bit further with this. When should ladies in the church adorn themselves with modest apparel? Always. Say, so how do you know that? Because the verse before this, the verse 8, talks about men praying. And it gives um, some uh, adverbs. It answers when. And it answers Where? And it says that men pray everywhere. The very next verse says, In like manner also may the women adorn themselves in modest apparel. In like manner how? Everywhere. Everywhere. So that means, as ladies, if you dress modestly here, but at home it's a different thing, you're not conforming yourselves to the scriptures. We say this because the Bible teaches it. That's why. The woman is not to usurp authority over the man, but be in subjection. It goes through this. It's not popular things. I'm sorry, but that's what the Bible says. So, we hold that line. And that line is important. As I said in the beginning, there are things that should not change. And even though our church may be going through a state of flux at, at the moment, there are things that should never change. And you ladies... And there are many, many wonderful ladies in this church. And I said it over Christmas time. I sent an email how thankful I am that we have good godly women here. It's, it's incredible. But the Bible says long and flowing everywhere. So I told you I was going to tell you the results of the marshmallow experiment. So this, remember, these kids were placed there. And they said, well, I'm going to take one marshmallow. I'll give you one marshmallow. You can take it right away. Or if you wait 15 minutes, you get two. The interesting part came years later. As the years rolled on and the children grew up, the researchers conducted follow-up studies and tracked each child's progress in a number of areas. What they found were surprising. 
The children who are willing to delay gratification, that is, that few small percentage of children who actually waited to receive the second marshmallow, ended up having higher SAT scores, lower levels of substance abuse, lower likelihood of obesity, better responses to stress, better social skills as reported by their parents, and generally better scores in the range of other life measures. The researchers followed each child for more than 40 years, and over and over again, the group who waited patiently for the second marshmallow, which you say that's, they just waited for the second marshmallow, but it has implications, doesn't it? Succeed in whatever capacity they were measuring. In other words, this series of experiments proved that the ability to delay gratification was critical for success in life. Covetousness can ruin your life in many ways. Many, many ways. I'm through, but God help us tonight. God help us, this terrible sin of covetousness. Let's pray.